the polls said that Jesus was defeated and the Jewish leaders had won. So while it was that Jesus hung on a cross, not quite like that one, his opponents were already having their victory party. They were probably writing headlines for the Jerusalem Gazette that next day. Probably big headlines. Jesus defeated at Calvary. And the signal seemed to be coming through the dense fog that probably gathered that day that those events, that it was finished, it was over. Jesus lost. Actually, they heard him say, it is finished. The Greek word, to telestai. Boom. Paid in full. It's an accounting term. Now, it all began in that upper room on Thursday night the night that we would normally celebrate called Maundy Thursday, the 11 disciples, not 12 because Judas by this time had left, um, he's with his 11 disciples, and right before Jesus leaves with them to head toward the Garden of Gethsemane, he says in uh, John 14, 28 to 31, that Satan was coming to attack our Lord with all he had. Imagine being a disciple and hearing Jesus say, guess what, we're going to be under the attack from Satan and his minions. And as Jesus walked with his 11, he he continued to do the same thing he did all the time for three years with his disciples. He walked with them and he taught them. He started by teaching about vine and branches, about how they need to remain in him. And he warned him that if you don't remain with me, if you fall away, uh, just like the branch, it, it just dries out and then you throw it in the fire and it's burned up. And on the way, he also told them something, probably scared them a little bit. He said, uh, you're going to be hated also because of me. They're not going to like this, what's happening. And he told him, though, even though you're going to be hated, there's going to be a time when, we, when I send a comforter to come and be with you. And we know that when the Spirit came on Pentecost, that comforter came back and eased their hearts. And then you can picture Jesus kind of descending the Mount of Olives. And he comes to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus is about ready to do battle one-on-one with the evil one. Now, maybe you remember the first time Jesus was in battle with Satan in the wilderness. Jesus, without food for 40 days and 40 nights, and here comes Satan. But try as he will, Satan failed. But if you read that account in Luke chapter 4, for example, in verse 13, it says, When the devil had finished all of this tempting, you know, turning rocks into bread, throw yourself off the highest spot, all the treasures of this world, it said that the Satan left him until an opportune time. In other words, I'll be back. It's only fitting now that this battle with Satan takes place in a garden, after all, When you think about it, let's go back to Genesis. It was in a garden that human beings, Adam and Eve, gave in to the evil one and sinned, disobeying God. And now, thousands of years years later, in another garden, Jesus is fighting the ultimate battle. But this time, the serpent is going to get crushed. I always love this Bible passage. It's one of the very first gospel proclamations, way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 315. They often call it the Proto-Evangelium, the the first gospel. It says, I will put enmity. This is God speaking, and he's speaking to the snake, this devil. I will put enmity between you, devil, and and this woman who has been Eve, and between your offspring, all of these other demonic forces that are going to be unleashed, 
and hers, he, Jesus, will crush your head. I remember seeing the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. I don't know if any of you saw that movie. But there's a part when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane and you see this snake slithering. And suddenly Jesus gets up and steps on the head of that snake. And he's dead. He's going to crush the snake's head, even though the snake is going to bite his heel. So now you've got Jesus walking into the garden. He leaves his 11 disciples. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, okay, we got twelve, thirty. Okay, we got bonus disciples tonight. And he tells them, "Stay here. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death." And again, I wonder if I were a disciple, if I would have been able to figure out what he's talking about. This is really terrible stuff. So he says, "Stay here and watch with me." And then Jesus fell to the ground on his knees, began to pray. We know it got to the point where he actually threw himself down, face down, and he was praying so hard that these great drops of sweat, like blood, dripped on the ground. Jesus, in agony already, knew the cup that he needed to drink, this cup of God's wrath and judgment, which is going to be poured out on him. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that all of the, the sins of this world, yours, mine, everybody's, from the beginning, Adam and Eve, all the way to the day, were poured out on Jesus on that cross. And he knew that when that cup was tipped over and those sins were poured on him, his father would turn and look the other way. And as Jesus bore the sins of the world, that's exactly what happened. And now when the dark cloud is kind of covering this garden, when Jesus was praying in deep sorrow, when the disciples actually fall asleep, they can't even stay awake for this, Unable to support Jesus, along comes Judas and gives Jesus that kiss of betrayal. And the soldiers come and they take Jesus away. The disciples run away into the night. One guy runs away so fast that when somebody grabbed him, he actually literally ran out of his clothes naked. And when all of this happened, it uh, looked like anything but victory. See, the dark forces of the world at this point thought victory was soon to be theirs. But it was only Friday, and Sunday was coming. Peter was standing in the courtyard then, warming his hands. Peter, the one who had spoken those words of confidence, never will I deny you, Jesus. No, not me. Everybody else, but not me. When that rooster began to crow, and Peter cursed and denied knowing Jesus, it did not look like victory. But then again, it was only Friday. Sunday was on the way. Then came the mocking and the beatings. Temple guards putting a blindfold on Jesus and uh, taking turns, turns hitting Jesus. You know, uh, saying, who hit you? And you can picture Jesus then with blood pouring from his nose and mouth from that beating. And as they hit Jesus, they said, come on, Jesus, tell us who did this. Come on, Jesus, who's hitting you? It was Friday. But Sunday was coming. Later, they tied Jesus to a Roman scourging post, stretching the skin on his back really tight. And so 39 times that scourge, that whip that had the bone embedded in the lashes, tore big chunks of skin and flesh and muscle off Jesus' back. The Roman soldiers who did this were really good at it. They were not novices. They were well-practiced. 
They were very good at taking a man to his limit, to intense pain, and at the same time keeping him just that close to death so that the victim would suffer even more. And as Jesus hung there, you know, his hands bound with blood pouring off of his, his body at that moment, the Jews and the Romans thought that they had won, but it was only Friday. And Sunday was coming. And when many in the crowd, who only a few days before had stood out there, like we talked about this last Sunday, and shouted, Hosanna, God save us, and worshipped him, those Hosannas, suddenly people were asked by Pilate, what do you want me to do with this man? The one you call king of the Jews, the one you welcomed into Jerusalem. And they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And it didn't look like victory. But that was Friday, and Sunday was coming. As they led Jesus away, carrying his cross through the streets, the soldiers purposely took the longest route they could so that all the people could see what happens to people who actually defy the Roman government. And Jesus, no doubt, walked by people he'd actually healed or cast demons out of. And chances are many of them just turned away, didn't want to look at that. And again, it didn't really look like victory. But then again, it was only Friday. And Sunday was coming. And when Jesus, God in the flesh, that incarnated God, was stripped naked. And we sometimes forget that. These guys were not crucified with a loincloth on, folks. Public embarrassment. So when Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to the cross with every breath, pushing up those spikes on his feet to try to ease the pain and, and, and then pulling on those spikes you know, that were through his wrist and scraping that open back on that old rugged cross as Jesus hung suspended literally between heaven and earth, blood pouring from his wounds, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus raised up and breathed for the last time and he said, it is finished. So he hung his head and died and the the sky turned black. Rock split, the temple curtain split in half. It looked like anything but victory. Now I wasn't there, but if I were, I have a feeling that on that dark Friday There was a lot of celebrating going on in that town. Pharisees and Sadducees celebrated the death of Jesus. But friends, it was only Friday. And Sunday was coming. See, it must have looked like defeat that night. But the fog was lifting. And little did they know it, that victory was on the way. Jesus, with great power, was suddenly just going to go, boom, right out of the tomb. Because Sunday was coming. And on Easter, guess what? When we get back here on Sunday at 10 o'clock, one of the very first things we're going to say is, Christ the Lord is risen. And you're probably going to shout, he's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. I have a couple of questions for you. Do you believe this and do you rejoice in this? Are you thankful that you worship not a dead man, but a risen Savior who in this, is in this world still today. Do you know that he's still with us no matter what other people might say? There's still some people say Jesus is still dead and in the grave. Do you know that he's still with us no matter what? 
Do you hear his voice of cheer? Fear not. I've, over, I've overcome this. Are you thankful that through the resurrection, this terrible defeat turned out to be one of the greatest victories of all time? I don't care what sport you follow. I've never watched a Super Bowl or a World Series game or anything like that that would even come more close. I mean, Nebraska could win the national title this year. I hate to put it this way. It would be, but not as great a shock as a man coming back from the dead. See, the resurrection is the moment the world has been waiting for and what the world so desperately needs. And I'd suggest even today, what the world needs today is the resurrection of Jesus, again, in their hearts and in their lives. See, the resurrection is why Jesus came to earth, and this is why we can look forward to him coming back again. I heard of a pastor one time who was preaching. He died while preaching. I thought, when I read that story, I thought, man, what a way to go. What a way to go. Doing what God called you to do. See, the resurrection, we can look forward to him coming again. If he came tonight and took us all home, I'd be happy with it. Be fine with me. Amen. I wouldn't have to worry about finishing the sermon for Sunday. <laughs> See, friends, but Jesus did not rise from the dead just for us to remain the same. Uh, for our lives to go on as usual. He came, he died, he rose again to save us. And he also came really to transform us, to change us. Now, I want to just mention four transformations that we should undergo because of the resurrection. One of these is that the resurrection transfers us from unbelief to belief. Pretty easy to deny Jesus. We probably had people we know that don't buy into it. Jeff and I had a little conversation, I think, about somebody who kind of wonders. He's stuck in the Old Testament. Forgets that Jesus lives in the New Testament and lives in our life today. See, the resurrection transforms us from death to life. The last couple of weeks, I've been able to do a, a wedding, which is always an interesting thing. And this coming Saturday, I'll be doing a funeral. Nancy's older brother up in Nebraska. I know that somewhere in that funeral sermon, I'm going to say, when Norman took his last breath sitting in his chair, probably in front of his computer, boom, just like that, face to face with Jesus. See, the resurrection transfers us from fear to courage. We can go through our whole life worried about what's going to happen when it comes to our point of death. What's going to happen? What are we going to be? Hey, we go out with courage because we know where we're going. It also transforms our despair into hope. On the day like today with the thunder and the lightning, you know, if you only look at the dark clouds, it's easy to kind of feel down a little bit. Well, a rotten, rainy day and thunder, and maybe nobody will come tonight because of the rain and all this kind of stuff. It, you, get, you get a little discouraged. Uh, but if you only look at dark clouds in your life, it's pretty easy to lose hope. It's pretty easy to be afraid. It's pretty easy to walk away from your hopes and dreams and each every step taking us further away. And I'm going to point at you because I know dark clouds hit you, buddy. But there's a bright light on the other side. Didn't put you in the darkness without bringing you back into light. See, if you are a Christ follower, when the dark clouds of life descend on you, remember, the sun is always there. It will shine once again. And after the rain, 
comes the rainbow. It's only Friday, but Sunday is on the way. Of our next song. <laughs>